My name is Sean McCann. I'm conducting a series of expert interviews on behalf of the European Hematology Association at, at the annual meeting of the American Society of Hematology, which this year is in Orlando in Florida. And with me I have Jean Connors. You're very welcome indeed. Thank you for coming along. And Jean is Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. I don't need to tell you where that is, I hope. It's in Boston. <laughs> yeah, I think <laughs> it's in Boston, in the, in the US of A. Boston, so um, we're going to talk about thrombosis, bleeding, cancer, etc. I mean, it's been around for a long time, since the 18th century, since Trousseau described his uh, thrombophobitis with pancreatic cancer. So uh, we all know it, it can be a presenting feature of cancer. Is there any common denomination as to the etiology? You know, I think cancer patients have multiple possible reasons to develop uh, blood clots or, or venous thromboembolism. And as we know, even a small segment of them develop arterial thrombosis. And um, the tumor type can predispose to thrombosis with some types of tumors being more prothrombotic, such as adenocarcinoma of the pancreas or lung cancer versus some other uh, types of tumors that are less prothrombotic. Some tumors cause um, thrombosis due to vascular compression. You know, Virchow's triad of, of hypercoagulability, compression, and stasis. stasis yes. So uh, that that, you know, particularly bulky things like sarcoma or lymphoma or something like that. So I think that there, there's just the, the cancer type and phenotype. And then there are the things we do to cancer patients that also predispose them okay. to developing blood clots. Okay such as, you know, the chemotherapy we give, radiation therapy, some of the treatments, and certainly surgery um, to diagnose or resect the tumor. Okay. Um, when I was young, which, which is a very, very long time ago, um, we were taught that it was mucins creating adenocarcinomas that were primarily associated with thrombotic events. Is that still... That's still, that's still quite a reasonable um, way to approach uh, the patient care. So, so gastric uh, cancers that are mucin-producing, uh, pancreatic that's mucin-producing, adenocarcinomas, they release substances that initiate uh, coagulation. Um, there are a variety of mechanisms that the tumors uh, can employ, though, to activate coagulation. There are um, cancer cell-derived microparticles that carry tissue factor on the surface that activate coagulation, you know, distal for distant from the cancer. Um, there are proteases that they may secrete. Um, there are a variety of different ways, cytokines that activate vascular endothelial cells, variety of different mechanisms uh, based on the tumor type. Uh, but mucin producing is the highest uh, association. Okay, let me ask you about the old hoary question of some, somebody aged, say, 55, who presents with a pulmonary embolus out of the blue. Yes. Is that cancer until proved otherwise, or uh, no, do you investigate, or what so do you do? That is an excellent question, and there's been some recent work in the last few years by a number of key investigators in the field. Um, about 20% of patients who present with a, a blood clot will ultimately be diagnosed with cancer. And so the sort of the uh, algorithm we use to approach these patients is um, age-appropriate screening. And so patients have to have undergone age-appropriate screening. So the 55-year-old man should have had a colonoscopy, prostate uh, assessment, um, and a, a symptom-driven type of evaluation. Right. You know, a chest X-ray is fine. Mark Carrier showed that doing 
using CT scan imaging uh, did not add if patients had no abdominal uh, complaints. That's the expense, obviously. Yeah, and the expense <laughs> is right. The yeah. number of, of cancers detected that way through very extensive screening right. is very, very small. Okay. So unless patients have uh, symptoms or have not followed up with age-appropriate screening, um, it, there's no reason to delve into um, okay. uh, a big workup. For, for cancer. And for, for a female, age-appropriate screening, 55-year-old, 60-year-old female, yeah, again, what, what do you consider as age-appropriate? <laughs> well, it's always a moving target, okay? <laughs> 70 is the new 60, and <laughs> we have, we have you know, um, we, there's a lot of controversy that goes back and forth about screening mammograms, screening pap smears, um, breast self-exams. So I, I think, again, if, if it's somebody who's presented and has had abnormal mammograms in the past or has not kept up with the guideline uh, dictated intervals, they should undergo mammogram um, and certainly breast exam by a clinician and, and again, GYN exam as well. Okay. When you say a GYN exam, what do you well, again, if they're postmenopausal yes. and they have, you know, what we call dysfunctional uterine bleeding, uh, something like that, if they've uh, not, if they've had abnormal pap smears in the past, again, there are guidelines from the GYN societies about how frequently you should follow up. Right, right. I have a thing about guidelines, by the way. I, I sometimes wonder if guidelines make people not think anymore. Well, that's an excellent uh, <laughs> question or excellent point that I would love to sort of debate because um, I think it depends on who's using the guideline, right? Mm -hmm. And so I always at my institution and on some of the committees I sit on um, talk about guidelines as what we would say for public schools, teaching to the mean, right? So that you're trying to get the mean common denominator, but there are going to be outliers uh, on either side. People who are in the field may ref and, and sort of aware of the, the data may refer to guidelines to sort of look for the the commonality and the common approach, but we'll understand the nuances of, of how to deal with patients at, at the ends yeah. of the spectrum. But unfortunately, for many people, guidelines become rules. Well, especially the judiciary, <laughs> if I may say so. I was just going to say, uh, not only judiciary, but um, um, insurance companies. Well, and and so well, insurance. Uh, so so in the U.S., we have the problem with litigation. Yes, right? I know. I know. Uh, but then we also have the problem with what is and isn't covered by insurance companies. And I and we do these peer-to-peer uh, -peer reviews where I've ordered a treatment or I've ordered a test for a patient and the insurance company will deny it and then I'll have to do a peer-to-peer -peer review and really? I get a, I'll get a physician on the phone and, and they'll say, well, our guidelines say this. And I'll say, well, when were your guidelines last revised? Right. Uh, and I said, well, they're out of date. Okay, at, at the insurance company level. So, so again, um, you may edit this out, but <laughs> no, no, we, we haven't reached that dreadful stage yet. Okay. Well, but, but I think guidelines guidelines can be helpful, but they can also be associated with pitfalls yeah. uh, uh, if they're too rigidly followed and and people don't take the patient in front of them uh, uh, as a whole. I also think they should be short. And I, yes. I put my hand up and say I was I, I did. Uh, I was a co-author on a 20-page guideline, which is, I think, complete and utter waste yes. of time. I mean, a chapter in a book, perhaps, but not a guideline. Well, I think that that's, that's key. And so I think when we look at some of these guidelines, I think there are some that are even longer than 20 pages, and they need to be distilled into some concrete 
you know, bullet mm -hmm. points. Yes. Uh, and then for those who want to delve into the true weeds and, and assess the methodology used to uh, review the data, um, that that can be available to them. As but otherwise, end. you're right. You're going to turn people off, and they're not going to be able to find what they need Quickly. easily yeah. Uh, yeah. from the guideline. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so we, we sort of agree on that. Um, okay, so here's your 55, 60-year-old person who's got breast cancer, let's say, and presents with a DBT. What's your approach to treatment? Um, so um, the approach to treatment, I mean, I'm going to pause here for a second. Uh, <laughs> so for these days, we have a variety of different agents we can use to treat patients with cancer. From data even 20 years ago and more recent data, we know that cancer patients have both an increased risk of thrombosis, but they also have an increased risk of bleeding. So when we look at this 55-year-old patient, you know, their risk of spontaneous bleeding with any anticoagulant is lower than if they were in their 80s. Uh, but we need to look at uh, patient preference, lifestyle, potential drug-drug interactions if we want to use some of the new direct oral anticoagulants uh, that have been recently um, shown in trials to be as effective, if not more effective, for recurrent VTE compared to low-molecular weight heparin. Um, with, in somebody with breast cancer, the likelihood of bleeding is extremely low. And if you look at the Hokusai VTE uh, cancer trial data, there was no difference in bleeding rate between low-molecular weight heparin and uh, adoxaban in 70% of the patients enrolled, as long as they did not have GI tract cancer, uh, the bleeding rates were the same. So I think for uh, you know a healthy 55-year-old woman with breast cancer, uh, one of the uh, direct oral anticoagulants uh, is, is probably the best bet. Right, so do you, let's just talk about the DOACs or whatever they're called yeah, nowadays. Yeah. I mean, they're very attractive in the sense that yes. one size fits all, yes. but you don't have to see the patient or monitor them frequently. Which, well, which actually could be a bad thing or a know, good thing. that is actually, so uh, that's um, maybe a misconception, I'll say, because okay. we've come to realize even in the non-cancer population uh, that patients with atrial fibrillation who may have fluctuation in renal status or, or other factors need a little bit more hand-holding than just writing the prescription and seeing them again in a year. Right. With the cancer patients, they're even more, they have even more factors uh, that uh, need to be assessed. So depending on the treatment type for cancer. Some patients may be at risk for thrombocytopenia, which would put them uh, at risk for bleeding, or you know, the DOACs by and large are have some degree of renal clearance, you know, from 25% to 80% with dabigatran. Um, and if they, you know, they get uh, dehydrated, they have drugs that cause uh, um, decrease or decline in renal function, their plasma concentration may rise. One of the things that we've seen is that patients who develop nausea and vomiting, um, if you can't keep the, the oral anticoagulant down and you're constantly vomiting it or having diarrhea and, and problems with malabsorption, you're at risk for getting recurrent uh, clot. So I, I think we, those factors need to be kept in mind, the type of treatment, the patient status, um, and there are rare drug-drug interactions uh, with the DOACs and, and chemotherapy agents, but those uh, drugs are more commonly used in cancer patients than the general population. Right. Is there any role at all for vitamin K antagonists anymore? 
Well, I, 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 throw them out the window. <laughs> I'm the medical director of an anti-coag service that still has about 3,000 patients on warfarin in it. Okay? Right. Um, and so I think there are a couple situations where warfarin is, is key. I mean, outside of the cancer population, uh, there's mechanical heart valves, there are mechanical circulatory support devices like left ventricular assist devices. Yeah. There's the antiphospholipid syndrome and the triple positive antiphospholipid syndrome where we've, we've have two trials now showing that, you know, uh, patients who have strong uh, multiple positive uh, antiphospholipid antibody tests and thrombotic events, they have antithrombotic, uh, antiphospholipid syndrome. Actually, uh, warfarin is better than the direct oral anticoagulants at preventing recurrent right. events, mostly arterial, but there's still a stronger, uh, warfarin is by far and away better. We use, still use warfarin in cancer patients if um, their renal function is such that we don't want to risk a DOAC um, and they can't afford a low molecular weight heparin. So in the United States, again, <laughs> where our insurance coverage is a little different and patients fall into the donut hole or they have poor prescription drug co coverage, they can't afford to pay the three or $4,000 a month uh, that, yes, that the low molecular weight heparins cost. Right. So they would much rather be monitored, which is covered in... I see. Yeah. I see. So warfarin hasn't gone away, okay? <laughs> um, uh, okay. Um, when you say holding somebody's hand, I'm not exactly sure what you mean. Somebody on, on a direct... Uh, well, I, I think we, you know, there's a, there's a wide variety of, of patient um, approaches to life, right? And there are yep. some patients who, who take the drug and walk away and blindly do things on their own that put them at risk for bleeding uh, and, and or recurrent thrombosis. Uh, and we sometimes need to, to advise them. And then there are others that are so afraid to engage in anything that they call you up or they face if you have EPIC in your institution, is a patient gateway message asking if they can do X, Y, and Z while taking this drug. Okay. So I, I think we have, you know, I think uh, we're still trying to sort out what the best way is to um, care for these patients on a DOAC, whether we should monitor creatinine, uh, and particularly in cancer patients, platelet count, how frequently. Um, so we don't know yet. We don't know yet, right. But but I think we can't just write the prescription and send um, them away. Okay. Particularly peri-procedure. Um, is still an issue. Some patients don't tell uh, their <laughs> surgeons or, you know, preventionists that yeah. they're on this drug yeah. and then they show up and have all, a all bleeding hell event. Them, yes, you know, so. exactly. Okay, we'll finish up now, but just on a sort of generic basis in cancer patients who have venous thromboembolism, how successful are you with treating them and how long do you treat them for? Well, we're, we're very successful okay. um, from my perspective, but we do know that across the board, no matter what study, you're, whether you're looking at the CLOT trial that Aggie Lee did in 2000, that was published in 2003, or the recent Hakusai Cancer VTE trial, that there is recurrence, and the recurrence rate is still higher than it is for patients who don't have cancer, no matter what anticoagulant you use. So we still have to be vigilant about investigating new signs, uh, you know, uh, unilateral leg swelling, right. new chest pain, or shortness of breath. And, you know, with our um, re-imaging of patients, you know, restaging um, or surveillance staging, depending on where they are in their cancer treatment, we're always picking.
picking up incidentally detected clots and and even if they're on full dose anticoagulation. So how to approach that is part of what I will be talking about in my education session. Um, <laughs> but but I, I think that um, what's the question? Well, we're talking about, you know, yeah, I forget how successful and how long well, do you treat for? Oh, how long? That's an excellent question yeah. because we have data up to six months and even in one study or a couple studies uh, up to 12 months now, we have two, two good prospective studies. The paradigm is if you have active cancer, persistent cancer, metastatic disease, or are getting active treatment, we continue Continue. anticoagulation um, to prevent recurrence because we know those factors are associated with an increased risk of recurrence. Well, thank you very much indeed for sharing your thoughts. Yes, no, thank you. So, for you young investigators and clinicians, there are still a few issues in cancer patients with venous and arterial thromboembolic disease, but hopefully, with good management and good monitoring, they live happily ever after. Thank you. Thank you.